Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got it! Looking away, McKenna around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! Makes a catch up against the wall, and he's gonna watch it fly. Strike three, called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to the Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website, SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us on the web at www.blessyouboys.com, on Twitter at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook at facebook.com/byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hookslide, along with my partner, Rob Rojacki, freshly returned from vacation. Rob, welcome back to the show, and uh, how's your OPS this week? Uh, doing a little bit better than last week. Um, <clears throat> I think I finally stopped sweating from uh, my trip my trip down to Miami last weekend. Oh, you were in Miami. Yeah, it was a little, a little humid. Did you have the rag top down so your hair could flow? Oh, I tried to stay in the air conditioning as much as I could. It was brutal down there. I just dated myself with a very, very bad Vanilla Ice reference there. So uh, if anybody got that, uh, hey, virtual high five, woo! So (laughs) anyhow, let's get this, our fifth episode of the Voice of the Turtle podcast underway. We're going to talk about meaningless baseball in September and the future of Victor Martinez, maddening mental lapses. We'll answer some listener questions and talk about what kind of manager the Tigers need in 2016. But before we do that, let's touch them all in our Rounding the Bases segment and find out what's the only good thing really worth talking about with the Tigers these days. This one's deep. This one's got a chance. And this ball is gone. A home run. Ian Kinsler delivers the walkoff. Number six for Ian, he rounds third, heads into the mob scene at home, and the Tigers take the series from D.C., a walk-off home run from Kinsler, 8-6. All right, and we are back from the break, ready to round the bases. What is the only good thing really worth talking about with the Tigers these days? We're going to get to that in just a second, but first off, Rob, how about those playoff odds for the Tigers? Yeah, so the last time I was on the podcast, uh, we kind of mentioned that maybe, maybe, maybe there might be a shot that the uh, Tigers could creep back into things, and yeah, that that was dumb. <laughs> we uh, we we should feel ashamed of ourselves. Uh, things have just kind of gone to hell uh, ever since then, and and yeah, so we're in last place now. Yeah, it's uh, not like we're to blame for that, but uh, I, I will point out that I was the one who said, no, no way, never going to happen. It's just not. It's, this is uh, this is meaningless baseball in September, so <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Capped off, I think, on the weekend by that wonderful, wonderful series in Toronto on last week's show, which I was flying solo, much to my chagrin and everyone's disappointment. Uh, I predicted that there would be a dumpster fire. I even kind of hoped there would be just for the pure entertainment, the kind of macabre entertainment value of that. Boy, they, they really, uh, they came through for me, didn't they, Rob? Yeah, um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let you handle things here. I want to I hear, <laughs> hey, were you satisfied with how bad that was? Were yes. you 
I Were you was, happy? I was so satisfied. I, and I know we're going to talk in, in a little bit about the mental lapses that kind of characterize that series in in an upcoming segment. But, uh, I, you know, I, I there's just no way when you run out that trio of pitchers against that kind of unstoppable offense that it's not going to be an absolute train wreck. It's, it's absolutely going to suck out loud at full volume in 3D. And it did, and it was great. And I think the most fun I had was probably... I'm going to say Saturday's game uh, with Edwin Encarnacion hitting three home runs in that game, nine RBIs, one of those being a grand slam. Ton of fun to watch that. I mean, if, like I said, if you're going to watch them lose, watch them lose in, in style, you know? Yeah, they uh, they definitely did their best to lose in style there. Um, they were outscored 29-6 to six during the series uh, and in the process fell 20 games. 20 games behind the Kansas City Royals uh, oh, in the L Central. Um, but the thing I want to point out with that is that, yeah, we'll get to some of the mental lapses and everything, but the Blue Jays have been doing this to everyone lately. Right. Uh, yeah, I've got a few numbers here. Since August 1st, since the trade deadline, the Blue Jays are 22-6. and six. They've sweeped five different teams in this stretch, including an 11-game win streak. They're outscoring their opponents 175-86. to 86. And scoring 6.25 runs per game. That's just not even safe for work. I mean, come on. The run differential is is incredible right now with that team. And uh, I'll take credit for having called that way back in, what was it, May, I think, when they had a really high run differential, probably one of the highest, I think, certainly in the American League at that, I mean, the AL East, rather, at that time. Uh, but they were still sitting around fourth, fifth place. And I remember saying at the time that that run differential is going to catch up and they are going to eventually be a good team and it's I you know I'm experiencing myself a little bit of jealousy that they were able to go out at the trade deadline and buy some pieces that were the right pieces that could actually you know get them over that hump and vault them into first place and really making a run for the playoffs yeah it's you know it's impressive uh one thing I want to point out with that run differential is that the 89 runs that they have outscored opponents by during just since August 1st would rank second in the American League right now uh behind the Astros of all teams uh, it's just an incredible run that they're on, and with the with the pitching that they now have with David Price and you know kind of moving everyone else down in the rotation because of that, I think they're really going to be uh, a force to be reckoned with in in October. And I, if anything, I'd consider them the favorites in the L above the Royals now. Hey, I I put money on them for the World Series back in May, so I'm uh, hoping that that pays off. The one thing that you mentioned the Astros there, and that they're kind of the the leading team right now in terms of run differential. You know, for the longest time, it was the Astros that led uh, all of the American League in home runs. But I noticed that over that weekend, the Blue Jays finally surpassed them. And, and obviously because the Tigers aided them greatly by giving up how many home runs in that series? Was it? I, I, I lost I lost track after like 38, I think, somewhere in there. It was bad. Just, uh, just bad. I mean, you put three fly ball pitchers into that little tiny itty bitty snow globe of a ballpark and bad things are going to happen. And somehow Randy Wolf didn't allow a home run in his start. Uh, I believe he just allowed his first home run as a Tiger tonight against the Royals. But, yeah, he didn't allow a home run in his start. But then you have Buck Farmer giving up uh, home runs like they're pancakes. Now, I run that back by me because I, I don't remember Wolf. I don't think he started in that series. It was Simon Boyd. Oh, it was Matt Boyd. Sorry about that. I I keep confusing Randy Wolf with <laughs> with Matt Boyd because they're both you know kind of soft tossing lefties. I know one's right. old and one's not old, 
they both give up lots of fly balls and everything. But no, Matt Boyd did. He definitely did give up home runs, and that was not not a fun one. Uh, Yes. Sorry, I was going to say my, my prediction failed uh, last podcast. I predicted that it would be Alfredo Simon of that trio that would be the least roughed up in the series. Uh, it turns out it was actually Matt Boyd, so but but not by much. Yeah, Boyd uh, Boyd definitely got tattooed there, and I think it kind of goes to show you that he's going to have a lot more success in Detroit than he ever did in Toronto. Um, you know, he's just an extreme flyball pitcher, uh, almost kind of left-handed poor man's Chris Young, mm. uh, if anything, and. Um, you know, having the spacious Comerica Park behind him for a full season is definitely going to benefit him far more than that little bandbox up north. So let, let's shift gears because instead of talking about the awful pitching, let's let's talk about Justin Verlander because there is like the one bright, shining moment right now in the Tigers' rotation. He is the only good thing really worth talking about right now in terms of what the Tigers are doing in 2015. He really is, and it's nice to have at least twenty percent of the games be watchable <laughs> right now. Uh, I guess I guess that's the best thing we can hope for these days. Um, but yeah, Verlander just kind of keeps going out there and proving to proving to everyone, fans, the national media that he's back. Um, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk after his near no hitter against the Angels right. a couple, uh, you know, a few days back. Um, but he just looked incredible in that game. It was vintage Verlander, to say the least. Um, you know, between the the atmosphere at Comerica Park after the sixth or seventh inning, uh, the way he was spotting his fastball, you know, it really was like it was 2011 or 2012 all over again. Yeah, that's the thing that's been missing, I think, for the last couple of years anyway, as uh, he's kind of struggled to get back to form and. You know, we always talked about how that was always the thing with Justin Verlander. When he would go to the mound, you never knew if tonight might be the night, you know, that you'd get another no-hitter out of him. It's always a possibility, we always said, and it it finally feels like that is the case again. It does, Um, and it was. I was really hoping that he was going to get that one uh, because the group of of pitchers with three no-hitters in their career is highly exclusive Mm. and highly predictive of where they're going to end up Mm. towards the end of their careers. I mean, you have guys like Nolan Ryan, Sandy Koufax, Cy Young, uh, and I believe Bob Feller uh, right. were four of the pitchers in that group. Uh, those are four pretty damn impressive names. <laughs> um, and you know, Verlander gets into that into that group one day. Uh, hopefully, he ends up uh, at the same place all those guys are too. Now, admit it—you're judging those guys strictly by pitcher wins, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Cy Young has you know most wins ever. That's right. The whole Cy Young most award is based on how many pitcher wins you get. So. There you go. Screw saber metrics, man. Let's go back to the the uh, the criteria of wins, ERA, and number of shutouts or uh, not shutouts, but no hitters in your career. That's 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 how we judge pitchers these days. Uh, let's talk about about uh, Justin Verlander's start last night versus Kansas City. Uh, to see him go up against Johnny Cueto like that, uh, and again, it's just it's nice to have Verlander back and to finally feel like, hey, you can bring Johnny Cueto to the mound, but we actually have an answer for that. Yeah, and I said that on the site, uh, kind of in the game preview before the before that game, um, that you know if things were different record wise, this would be a huge matchup heading into September. I mean, mm. you'd start off kick, you know, you'd start off on September first with you know a pair of aces going against each other in what last year would have been you know a tight race going down the stretch. Uh, this year, not so much, but it was still a very impressive uh, matchup for the two. Um, and I really thought Verlander looked better than the the line ended up. He allowed four runs, uh, I believe only two of which are earned right, in his right. six and two-thirds innings. Um, 
But, you know, he's out there pumping 97 miles per hour by guys in the late innings. You know, it's not triple digits, but that's still pretty dang impressive, and not many pitchers in baseball are able to do that. Um, you know, in his last 10 starts, he has a, a swinging strike rate of over 11%, uh, which is actually higher than his 2011 MVP season. Wow. Uh, so it's he's, he's definitely back, and while the fastball velocity isn't quite what it used to be, it's still pretty darn good. And he doesn't have to stop and shimmy shimmy shake to do it. Well, Johnny Cueto didn't get any blocks called on him last night. Uh, <laughs> he I don't know. How, don't know how Brad Osmus didn't get ejected there, but <laughs> I didn't even notice. Uh, I don't know if you actually saw the game, but I was I was catching most of it on radio while I was trying to get some work done at the same time. So I was kind of tuning in, tuning out. Didn't have the visual in front of me. Was was Cueto doing any more of that uh, hippy hippy shake thing that he does? I didn't. I didn't notice much of it either. Uh, I did spend part of last night's game prepping for the show, actually. Yeah. Um, so didn't didn't keep my eyes on Coedo too much. Uh, I did turn tune most of my attention into Verlander when he was pitching, mm-hmm. as opposed to our offense. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious to know if after the uh, kind of the dust up with uh, Brad Osmus complaining about those those pitching motions on Coedo's part, if if in the next outing, if you know, he would sort of rub it in his face and do it some more, or if they'd kind of back it off and try and avoid the controversy. But I guess I can go back and watch the tape. So anyway, uh, what about Shane Green? We didn't get a chance to talk. You were on vacation last week. I was on vacation last week. This is kind of, it's a little more than yesterday's breakfast. It's two weeks old breakfast now, I think at this point. Uh, the, the, the announcement that Shane Green uh, has a pseudo aneurysm, which I'm not even entirely sure what that is. I can kind of break those two words apart separately, and I, I know what an aneurysm is uh, that means you're dead, and pseudo means maybe not really. So I guess my medical opinion is that Shane Green is dead, but not really. Thankfully, uh, my co-host here actually has a degree in physical therapy. He's a doctor of physical therapy and can uh, answer from his uh, wide, wide berth of, of medical knowledge. Well, when we talked about those last night, I uh, actually sent you the shrug emoji as for what a pseudo aneurysm is. Um, but I did a little bit of research today, um, and I guess we should back up and point out that an aneurysm, for those that don't know, is a dilation of a blood vessel uh, in the body, uh, basically meaning that it swells when it's not supposed to. Um, it can be pretty dangerous, uh, especially if that blood vessel is in an important area like the brain or you know anywhere kind of in the gut or where the vital organs are. But anyway, pseudoaneurysm is when there is a leaking in the hole of an artery. Um, in, in Shane Green's case, this was in his shoulder. And that a hematoma or a little bit of a, not a blood clot, but a, a pool of solidified blood uh, forms outside of that artery wall. And it can cause a number of different things. In Green's case, it caused a little bit of pain in the shoulder as well as some numbness down in his hand. Uh, whether that numbness was because something was pinching on a nerve or some muscle was getting, you know, the muscle was tightening, as uh, head athletic trainer Kevin Rand said, I'm not really sure. But it seems like it's, you know, fairly easily be easily treated, uh, whether it's through um, some sort of ultrasound to break up that area or surgery to go in and take out the, uh, take out the little uh, blood clot, I guess is the best way to put it. So we'll see. I mean, hopefully this is kind of a, a quick fix for him. I imagine that it was caused just by the repetitive throwing motion over years and years and years of playing baseball. Um, so hopefully it's not something that impacts him in, in the future. And there you have it, kids. Don't 
ever get into baseball because it'll kill you eventually. It's just uh, it's the number one killer of, of right-handed pitcher arms at this point. The thing that I'm most curious about, though, Rob, is I kind of think through this and the news came out. And, you know, when you start to kind of draw and connect the dots that, you know, as you said, it begins with, you know, maybe some shoulder tightness and then it affects the uh, the numbness, you know, the, the feeling in the fingers and in the arm somewhere else. You would have to think that then that affects the way that you're gripping the baseball and the effectiveness of, of your grip. And that might affect how you're throwing that sinker or slider. And that might affect the way that those pitches are breaking or not breaking or sinking or not sinking. And, hey, is it possible that fixing this fixes Shane Green? It's absolutely possible. Um, we saw... We've seen kind of all year that Shane Green's fastball velocity has been down from what it was when he was with the Yankees last season. Um, his command hasn't been great, and he's had multiple episodes of you know a little bit of numbness in his hand, which I imagine would have a pretty significant impact on your ability to hold the baseball. You know, I, I haven't looked too far into Green's secondary pitches, but when the fastball velocity is down and you're missing command uh, a lot more than he did in his you know fairly brief stint with the Yankees last season. I believe he threw about 80 innings. Um, you know, that's pretty significant. And I, I wonder if that really is kind of what caused his his um, troubles there. So say, you know, it seems like it was the uh, the start that he had. I want to say it was at Fenway against Boston when he just really got lit up that one weekend that I went back uh, to the pitch data and started looking um, – you know, to see what pitches he was throwing that were getting hit so hard. And, and pretty much in every case, it was it was the slider, what game day was calling the slider. But what was interesting to me is that that was also the pitch in the first couple of innings that he was getting the most weak contact on. So as the game progressed, he it looked like he was leaving that slider up a little bit. It wasn't getting the break. It wasn't getting the sink that he wanted. And uh, to me, that just, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm no major league pitcher, but, uh, you know, grip is, I think, everything when you're trying to throw a slider. Oh, absolutely. And uh, pointing out with that, the slider has been hit pretty hard this year, but also the fastball has been really kind of tattooed for him. Um, 11 of the home runs he has allowed this season have come off the fastball, or or, uh, in his career have come off the fastball, uh, including seven of them this season. Um, He's allowing a batting average of almost 400 on his sinker, and I think that that plays a huge role into why he hasn't been quite as effective. You know, if he's missing his spots with a fastball, it's not that great of a you know, not that good of a pitch. It's not Justin Verlander's fastball that's going to, you know, get guys to swing and miss at it quite a bit. Um, he really needs to be able to locate it down on the zone. And when you can't grip the ball, you can't, if anything, you can't feel what's going on with the ball, mm. you're going to have a lot more trouble. So it's, you know, it's too early to say whether or not this was the reason why Shane Green has been hot garbage this year. But uh, it's a pretty compelling argument. But I think that's the point, though, is that he hasn't really been hot garbage all year. I mean, those first couple starts in April through April, you know, he was looking really, really good to the point that there was at least one uh, media journalist who wrote a a rather premature article saying Shane Green would be in the Cy Young conversation this year. Uh, But, you know, certainly as as someone like myself who who played a bit of uh, daily fantasy sports with FanDuel and and DraftKings, I watched Shane Green become one of the most sought-after bargain bin pitchers to use for your for your lineup because he was racking up crazy amounts of strikeouts and points and of course in my case when I finally did decide to spend the salary money on him for my fantasy lineup it was was the last weekend in April when he absolutely got destroyed and gave up like eight or nine runs in like four innings or something stupid so I will um I'll take the the blame I broke Shane Green with my foolish betting baseball uh, fantasy baseball habits but in all seriousness um, he was doing really, really well before 
the troubles started. And if, in fact, you know, identifying the medical problem and, and then fixing that fixes Shane Green, that's, I mean, I think that's a huge weapon for the rotation in 2016. Absolutely. Uh, if you can get Green back, you know, this was kind of the guy they were they were planning on to solidify the back end of that rotation as one of the one of the cost controlled guys going forward um if you can get him back in that you know i don't know if they can necessarily count on him quite yet uh as they make their plans for the off season but if you can get him back and that either displaces someone or that you know gives you uh, another year less of guys like buck farmer and kyle lobstein that's that's really huge yeah yeah i mean i i, I loved what I saw of the couple of sample games that I watched from him in 2014 that was, you know, made me excited to see him come to the Tigers in 2015. You know, the way it was looking in those first couple of starts looked just like what I was seeing in 2014. I mean, he's got really, really good stuff. And I just, I refused to believe when he was struggling like that, that it was, you know, hey, this is just what you get. This is Shane Green. He's really not that good after all. No, I, I think he really is. He's got something to offer. And hopefully this... Uh, you know, getting this medical issue cleared up is, is going to fix that, and we'll see him return to form in 2016. Uh, I think that's just about going to do it for our rounding the bases segment. When we get back, we'll do our warming in the pen segment, talk about the biggest pitching mismatch of this season, and hey, guess who's coming back to Comerica after the break? Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line, and gone! All right, and we are back with the warming in the pen segment. Going to talk about what is the biggest pitching which you miss and which because my lips don't work and my tongue doesn't work, and the word is actually biggest pitching mismatch of the season. And who's coming back to Comerica? Let's start though with the subject because it is now, as of this recording. September the 2nd, we are officially out of the month of August, and uh, it's time to talk about September call-ups, Rob. is. Um, I know you did a post, I think it was in the middle of August, right around the 14th or 15th, and you were kind of projecting who you thought was on that list of the probabilies, the maybes, the long shots, uh, and then there was the Mike Hessman group, which is just, it's not going to happen. But um, has your opinion changed at all in terms of who you expect to see coming up? Well, I know that a couple of the guys that I listed on there have been either called up uh, or in Mark Krause's case, released since I posted that. So that has changed a little bit, but I think overall not much has changed. I think we're a little bit more likely to see someone like Stephen Moya get called up, and I know we'll get him in a little bit. Um, you know, the two names that they have called up so far are Brian Holiday and Kyle Ryan, which I thought were kind of no-brainers. Um, I imagine they'll pick up more guys when the minor league season gets over. I know that most games go until the 6th or the 7th, uh, so they've still got several more games left this month. They can't totally deplete the Mudheads roster yet. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't expect to see many surprises. Uh, and with the, with the 40-man roster we have, there aren't going to be many pleasant surprises. <laughs> I know. There's this, uh, I don't know, you're hoping kind of for the consolation prize of the September call-ups. You know, when, when we're playing meaningless baseball like this, you look for any sort of entertainment value that you can. And, you know, novelty is always exciting. So, hey... September call-ups is a time to get a little bit excited and see some faces that you, you know, have heard about maybe throughout the year and, you know, read about on our site or, you know, there's just, I don't have that feeling this year, Rob, honestly. I, I look at the list and kind of go, yeah, <laughs> I'm not really terribly excited to see any of these guys. 
Yeah, well, in the years past, we've had, you know, maybe not top prospects in the game, but we've had guys like Nick Castellanos get called up. James McCann was called up last year. So you had guys that were really going to have an impact at the major league level. And I don't think you really have one of those this year. Um, you know, the biggest name that you might call up is Stephen Moya, who still seems like a huge long shot to make make an impact at the big leagues. Um, guys like Daniel Fields, Tyler Collins, who's already on the roster now, um, are probably only going to be, you know, maybe fourth outfielders at best. Uh, and a lot of the pitchers that could potentially get called up have already been up here this season and for one reason or another have been sent back down to Toledo. So, you know, if anything, they're... Even you want to see them even less than the guys we already have. That's right. I mean, you bring up a good point. Just because of the way this season has gone, we've already seen so many faces already called up from Toledo. So maybe that air of mystery is somewhat removed in this case, where there's not, you know, you don't have a name that you haven't attached to a face yet that you know you're really excited to see. Stephen Moya is is one of those that I mean, he was called up last year. He was even I want to say, if memory serves, he was on the roster. He was up with the Tigers this year at some point. Maybe I'm maybe I dreamed that. No, I think you dreamed that. That was Daniel Fields who got called up for a hot second uh, this year. I think he played in like one or two games, and then was sent back down. Um, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking he was he was uh, he was with the the spring training squad though, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. That's I think that's what I'm thinking about. Yep, yep. that was that was a long ago February dream. Then there was some buzz about him in spring training, and then that quickly went away <laughs> uh, when Moya struggled, and then end up ended up on the disabled list with I think it was plantar fasciitis. You know that you're, yeah, that's right. I completely forgot about that boy. Yeah, it's just been a season full of fun. Uh, yeah, and we've talked about Stephen Moya before. I think maybe one of our listeners had asked the question about it, or we were just talking about the in general, which uh, you know, which guys from Toledo we thought would get called up. And I mean, in terms of your vote for Stephen Moya, is it yay or is it yeah? You know, I, I think I'm still very, very much on the yeah side of things. Who did I compare him to? Evan Gaddis, I think it was was the guy in the majors that I saw the most. Uh, you know, comparison relationship with in terms of the statistics. Mm, yeah, something like that. Um, you know, with Moyer, you're going to get a ton of strikeouts. You know, maybe he comes up and hits a ball 600 feet. Um, so in that, you know, for that sense, for the entertainment value alone, I'd like to see him get called up. I don't think he's going to have a major impact. Um, and I think that you can use the time to evaluate other outfielders maybe a little bit more than Moya, as well as let J.D. Martinez chase, you know, whatever milestone, 40 home runs, or something like that this month. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about him. I don't really care either way. Um, but if he wants to come up, you know, and absolutely destroy a baseball or two, I'm all for it. Okay. Like I said, we're, we're looking for any kind of entertainment we can get out of this. If that means that, you know, Stephen Moya comes up and lights himself on fire and plays for an inning in flames, then I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, there's really nobody else. I think that I'm really curious to see though. Really? Uh, the, the, Players that I want to see get a shot eventually with the with the big leagues uh, are all Whitecaps players, and that's just such a long shot at this point. And you know, as you said, they're the Whitecaps are actually in their final week of baseball right now, but they're in the middle of a major playoff push. So it's not like I, I don't you know, not that their roster would get rated anyway, but you especially don't want to see their roster get kind of plucked from while they're in the middle of chasing a you know a playoff spot at this point. No, um, and with the guys that. You know, I would like to see called up. Uh, there are a lot more compelling reasons as to why they shouldn't get called up. Right. Uh, you know, someone like Michael Fulmer, who a lot of fans were hoping might get called up this season. I believe he has to be placed on the 40-man roster at some point this offseason to avoid the Rule 5 draft, which will be a no-brainer for the Tigers. 
Um, but you don't want to call him up yet because that starts his arbitration clock that burns a, an option year, uh, which may or may not come back to haunt the Tigers in a couple years. Um, and he's had a pretty significant injury history. Um, he's already about 30 innings over his 2014 total, uh, so you don't necessarily want to overstretch him too much. So I think there are a lot of reasons that you don't want to call him up. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the fan in me, he's kind of our new top prospect, and you want to see that guy come up. Well, buy, buy a plane ticket then because <laughs> don't, like you said, you, as much as you want to see him, you know, you don't want to see the team make a make a dumb move just to get him up, you know, in the Detroit clubhouse just for the sake of what the hell, let's see the guy. So, yeah, that's that's the September call-ups. It's really not all that exciting, but um, Woo. Yeah, we're going to have to drive our entertainment from watching the Tigers get slaughtered uh, by the Blue Jays and things like that. That's that's what it's come down to. It's uh, It's sadism. I think at this point, uh, we were talking about the fact that we're just basically watching meaningless baseball at this point, And let's talk a little bit about what, what we're seeing coming up in the next week. Uh, of course, the Tigers are, as we're recording this, they're in the middle of that three game set with Kansas city. Uh, have you got the game on? I do not. Uh, MLB Damn Network it. decided to put tomorrow's game on national TV <laughs> tonight's. Uh, so they kind of screwed me out of that one there. Um, the last I saw, the Tigers were down 3 nothing with Randy Wolf on the, round, on the mound. Uh, and I believe Ian Kinsler got plunked by Jordano Ventura to lead off the game. Although oh. it doesn't seem like any fireworks have uh, come out of that. Oh, mm. apparently a, a tweet from uh, Royals beat writer Andy McCullough, uh, who you should absolutely follow on Twitter, at McCullough Star, um, just tweeted, quote, Lorenzo Cain killed the baseball, 4 nothing KC. Fantastic. Yep, that's that's what we're dealing with. Um, yeah. Well, maybe they can still take take the series. Not that it even matters, but shoot, like, like I said on Twitter last night, when they started to play that game in Verlander versus Cueto, there there was just maybe a little bit of a spark in me. I, I kind of felt that old rush of like, all right, Tigers, go out there and show them, you know, who you really are. Show them the fangs, even though it doesn't mean shit at this point, and they're, they're still going to be you know, 20 some odd games out of first, but just, just kind of remind the Royals who we are and we're coming back next year. So enjoy it while it lasts. Meanwhile, uh, we've got the homestand coming up versus the Cleveland Indians uh, and then a homestand versus the Tampa Bay Rays. We are looking at a fun matchup on Sunday between Justin Verlander. Again, the only reason to really get excited about any games going on right now is squaring off against Danny Salazar. How do you like that matchup? Yeah, I think that one's going to be pretty fun. Uh, Salazar, to go through kind of the numbers here, he's 12-7 and seven with a 3.27 ERA because this podcast is only looking at wins in ERA now. Right. How many, um, how many no-hitters? <laughs> none yet, uh, as far as I know. He also, has a, he also has a 3.53 fielding independent pitching, or FIP, uh, in 151 innings, and he's striking out 28% of batters he faces this year, which is fifth among uh, qualified pitchers and just below just below uh, former Tiger Max Scherzer. Good grief. Well, that's that's some decent so, company right there. That's been kind of the, the, the strange thing about the Cleveland Indians all year, though, is that at least a couple months back when I checked and was paying attention to these kinds of things and comparing them to the Tigers when the Tigers were actually still sort of in it, uh, the thing that struck me was that the, the Indians had three pitchers in their starting rotation we're all in like the top five or top ten in baseball in terms of strikeouts and strikeouts per nine, and that was uh, Kluber was one, obviously uh, Salazar, and then who am I thinking of? Carrasco maybe was the third one. 
Probably Carlos Carrasco, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, they've got this, like, dynamite rotation that's striking out all kinds of hitters, and yet, like, their their team starting rotation, ERA versus FIP, there was, like, this huge gap, and you have to go, man, that, that really has got to hurt, you know, to realize you've got dynamite on the mound, but for some reason, I mean, probably, apparently, the defense that's behind them is, is it's not working out. Yeah, and they're kind of almost like a poor man's version of the 2012 and 2013 Tigers mm. in that they have this amazing rotation, uh, but not a lot to go with that. And, uh, you know, among things, I think that's the lack of a Miguel Cabrera exactly. in the middle of the lineup. Um, you know, having Miggy erases a lot of your faults, which is nice uh, when you have them, but not so nice when you're the Indians and you don't have a guy with that kind of thump in the middle of the order. Yeah, when you're talking about 2012-2013 Tigers in terms of having great rotation but not so great defense, it's not just Cabrera, but in those days, you know, it was Cabrera, Fielder, at times Martinez, Peralta, Infante back when he could actually hit home runs. It was, you know, it was a pretty formidable offense. That 2013, that 2013 team was just so damn good. It was ridiculous. So damn good. And now we sound like old men on the porch. I remember back in 2013, get off my lawn. Uh, we'll get we'll get back there. We will get back to that. I know we will. I know we will. Oh boy! But that Tampa Bay series. Hey, guess who's coming back to Comerica Park? Drew Smiley. Yeah, that's our boy. I'm looking. I'm actually looking forward to that one. Um, Smiley uh, had a shoulder labrum injury earlier this season, hmm. but did not have surgery, so he's kind of returned to finish out the year. Um, he's actually striking out over ten guys per nine innings. Uh, as <laughs> Is, and has over five strikeouts for every walk this year. It's in a very small sample, uh, only about 37 innings there. Um, but, you know, it's kind of amazing to see him evolve into this monster, uh, you know, ever since he got to Tampa. And it just kind of makes you wonder, what in the hell are they putting the water down, in the water down there? I mean, they made, Fern- yeah. they made Fernando Rodney into an actual dynamite closer. Right. Right. Uh, and I know, you know, it was probably the right move to go get David Price, you know, for the playoff run last year. I know that costs, you know, that costs Drew Smiley. But, but there, there's there's part of me that just wishes we could have held on to him because I always liked him. I, You know, he seemed to always have that within him. And you always kind of thought he's he's going to explode at some point and be really, really good. And, you know, unfortunately, last year was the first year he really got a chance to, you know, try to prove that as a regular starter and then he was gone you know after the first half of the season but uh you know good for him for pulling it together for for tampa bay yeah and i you know i we were having this conversation with a, a few other byb writers uh earlier this week about you know what would we rather have smiley again or you know have david price uh and obviously from aside from the playoff run in 2014 i don't think the tigers win the division last year without price in the rotation um, you know, you also, you end up with Daniel Norris, uh, and Matt Boyd and the, the third guy that they got down in the minor leagues. Um, and you could almost argue that the Tigers got more for half a season of David Price than they gave up for a season and a half of him. Uh, and that, you know, that really is kind of incredible. Yeah. That's the difficulty in, in uh, evaluating, you know, the long-term effects of those trades is like you said, one thing turns into another and the ripples just kind of keep going and, you know, geez, you could wait 10 years to see the ultimate outcome of, you know, of all of that. But uh, you're probably right. They probably wouldn't. Although, I don't know. I, I would like to go back maybe at some point, and maybe this will be a future post, and look at uh, David Price's performance for the Tigers in the second half of 2014. Because I seem to remember that he was doing this very bizarre up-down, up-down, win-one, lose-one thing 
getting rocked every other outing uh, for for much of that second half. But I'm going to have to, you know, I also thought Stephen Moya was playing for the Tigers in 2015, so we know how good my memory is. So uh, we with the other. The biggest pitching mismatch of this whole season is also going to take place in that Cleveland series. Oh, this is going to be great. In this corner, striking out everything in sight, is Corey Kluber going up against, in this corner, who's giving up hits to everything in sight, Buck Farmer. Uh, who, do, who do you like in that matchup, Rob? Um, can I just forfeit already? <laughs> Are we allowed to do that? You know, I... I, I do dabble in a little bit of sports betting from time to time. I like to check the uh, the Vegas money lines on team matchups. I can't wait to see what the matchup is going to be. Uh, you know, not the matchup, but the money lines for that matchup. I, I'm betting, yeah, ha, 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 I'm guessing that they will give the Indians something like uh, a negative 300 money line, which means you got to basically put down $300 just to win 100 It's going to be just whacked out, I think. The question, I think, uh, maybe to make it more fun, to make it more um, challenging for the prediction is, on the one hand, how many uh, Tigers will Corey Kluber strike out? And on the other hand, how many runs will Buck Farmer give up? Are you saying kind of an over-under which one here? Yeah, just just give me a ballpark. Um, I think Kluber will, let's say nine strikeouts for Kluber. Really? Um, yeah. You're not going to go oh. over ten. No, I think I think it'll only be done. The, the Tigers have actually played fairly well against Corey Kluber. Okay. Um, you know, they they have kind of roughed him up a bit earlier this year. Although you know he was going through a little bit of a rough patch, um, especially with uh, the porous defense behind him, and then kind of locked things down towards the middle of the season. Um, so you know I'm <laughs> I don't think that the Tigers are going to win this game necessarily, <laughs> but but I think that you know it may a little bit it may not be quite as one sided as we think. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think Buck Farmer, if anything, is getting pulled, uh, you know, a little quickly before he can allow too much damage. Although I didn't watch the uh, the meltdown on Saturday, um, you know, I was you know busy busy sweating uh, through every pore in my body in Miami. Uh, so uh, clearly, I won that battle. I mean, no, you're right. They'll they'll they won't let Farmer obviously pitch seven eight innings. They'll they'll get him out of there before then. And yeah, he got roughed up, but that's that's the Blue Jays. You know, the the Indians don't have that kind of thump, not comparable to what the Blue Jays have. So maybe maybe the the real prediction should be how many runs do the Tigers give up? Because we know once Farmer gets pulled and it gets handed over to that bullpen, it's it's not any better. Can we just forfeit already? Or <laughs> we covered that as an option, and no, you can't. We are watching every one of these games in this meaningless September. You have to. It, it's it's pure entertainment. So I'll set the over under on runs surrendered to the Indians at uh, seven. Yeah, I'll take the over. Okay, so the over on that. I'm gonna, and and I I've already said I'd set the over under on strikeouts for Kluber at ten, and I think I would probably take the over. But uh, you you might have me beat on that one, but. Uh, See this. This is how you make September baseball fun. <laughs> how bad are they going to get slaughtered today, Frank? Oh, I don't know. You know? Uh, it is. Uh, yeah, it's not meaningful baseball, and that's uh, it's unfortunate. However, I want to say I have to kind of throw this out there. It's cheap baseball right now. If you happen to live in the Michigan area, check out StubHub.com. I just I went over there uh, last week, thinking, you know what? Here's the deal. This Tigers team is not going to be this bad in 2016, right? I mean, they, they can't be. This is kind of a unique 
situation where it's it's awful right now and so therefore nobody's going to the games and so therefore the tickets are actually really really cheap i was able to find two tickets for the september 23rd game right there in the on deck circle behind home plate for like 32 dollars a seat which is awesome because if you think about it this is not like going to watch the 2003 tigers you know you get to go see miguel cabrera up close and personal, you get to actually sit close enough that you can tell what cologne he's wearing. You, you get to watch JD Martinez. You know, you get to watch whoever's going to be pitching that day. I think I tried to work it out in the rotation and I couldn't figure it out because it's uh, it's supposed to be Matt Boyd, but I'm not even sure if he's still going to be if they'll have shut him down by that point. But uh, you know, it's 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 not necessarily a bad um, roster if that makes sense. There's still some legitimate stars that you get to go and see this year and you get to do it for a really cheap price and I don't think that's going to be the case next year so if you're in the area you know have fun with it go get, go get some seats don't you think I mean wouldn't you do it Rob absolutely uh you know the Na- the Washington Nationals here in DC were bad uh you know a couple times over the last few years uh and 2013 was the year I'm really kind of thinking of here um you know and they those tickets were going for you know as little as five bucks in the outfield. So, you know, you head out there, grab a grab a beverage or two, and just have a great time. Absolutely. Yep, get it get it while you can, because they're not going to be this bad for long. So this is kind of a once-in-a-long-lifetime once opportunity. So, all right, that'll wrap it up for our Warming in the Pen segment. When we get back, we're going to go high and tight and ask the question, have the Tiger players mentally checked out for this season? We'll get right to that after the break. A fly ball, center field. This one's deep, going back. Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone. A home run. Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at bat of the day. All right, it's time for the uh, high and tight segment. This is kind of the tough, the tough question that we're going to be asking here. Have the Tigers players kind of mentally checked out for the 2015 season? Have they completely given up? Uh, you know, based on that uh, that series in Toronto, it's it's getting harder and harder to make the case that they haven't. What do you think, Rob? I'm really hesitant to say that the team has checked out, has given up on the season. Um, you know, there were several mental mistakes in that Toronto series. The biggest one, I think, being Anthony Ghost just forgetting how many outs there were uh, when he made a catch in the outfield. Um, and you know, you don't see that those mistakes much. Uh, we have seen them a little bit more this year throughout the season. Um, so, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily the team giving up or this team just kind of being, you know, this being one of those years types of things. Um, you know, it's it's tough to, to really say that they have given up. Um, like we pointed out before, Toronto has been destroying everyone and everything in its path right now. So the the, you know, the margin of score in that series can't, be too indicative of you know the Tigers effort I think that the Blue Jays are just a more talented team um so I'm still a bit on the fence on it see I hate that you're doing this to me because now just for the sake of the podcast and for the sake of taking up the opposing side you're going to make me do the the sports talk radio thing where you can just tell this team is listless and they're just not even trying anymore and I hate that I have to actually argue this side but screw it here we go I, I it doesn't look good 
it's not just the 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 Anthony goes mistake forgetting that there were you know not three outs and letting letting a, a run tag up and score from second base. I mean, come on, the guy advanced 180 feet on the base paths on a fly ball to deep center field, all because Ghost forgot how many outs there were. Just kind of turned his back and jogged it back in, and by the, by the time he figured out what had happened. The run had scored, but that wasn't the only, you know, the only mistake. We saw Tyler Collins botch a play. We saw Rajay Davis hit a pop fly that that Jose Bautista lost in right field and ended up dropping it. Uh, but because Davis was, he wasn't even jogging to first base. That was more of like a, a an amble that he was doing. He was carrying the bat. In fact, that that's that's how confident he was that he needed to get his butt down to first base. That so that by the time Bautista dropped the ball and chased it down. Uh, Rajay Davis, for all of his speed, could not advance past first base. Uh, things like that, and uh, just some of the mistakes that even we saw uh, last night—not just the errors, but you know, Tyler Collins throwing the ball into third base when he should have gone to second, and that allows the runner to get to second. I don't know, Rob. I mean, some of that is maybe not them checking out, but it's just bad fundamentals that have maybe plagued them all year. In addition to some of the stupid base running mistakes they've made, there have been bad fundamentals and stupid mistakes like this all season long. Um, and that is definitely a reason why they're, you know, 19, 20 games back in the division right now. Um, and you do make a good point that a lot of these things have been kind of creeping in. It's not just the errors. Um, and I think it's tough for to, to kind of maintain the same focus as a team like the Blue Jays, a team like the uh, like the Royals that are in the playoff hunt. Uh, you know, the Royals, you know, pretty much have the division locked up at this point, but they're still fighting for playoff position they still have something to play for this season while the tigers are pretty much just counting down the days until the season ends um you know you try to go out there and give you know as much effort you know 100 percent effort uh as best you can but sometimes it maybe just doesn't happen um you know i still think that the tigers owe it to themselves and to their opponents to you know give as much effort as they can in these games but you know sometimes i think that losing focus is a bit natural in this situation yeah, I, I would unfortunately have to agree that it's hard to blame them if they are maybe checking out just a little bit. That I mean, that's the drawback of the baseball season being 162 freaking games is that, you know, at this point in the season, they've played, what is this game, 132 that they're on and there's only 30 games left and there's no chance of them getting into the playoffs. And yet they still got to go out there and grind out all the at-bats and all the plays in the field. And it's just, I mean, that can't be any fun at this point when you realize it's, really not it doesn't mean anything whether we win or lose doesn't affect jack squat at this point it's got to be hard to maintain your focus i think at that point unless you're say miguel cabrera chasing a batting title yeah and i think that you know some of these guys do have things to play for um you've got guys like alex avila and roger davis playing for contracts next year among other things um you've got guys like justin verlander pitching to at least kind of show that he's you know, back and form to kind of work through things that he didn't get a chance to do in April and May when he was on the disabled list. Um, I think Miguel Cabrera apparently just got ejected from tonight's game. So, <laughs> there, so, so there's that for you. Um, so, you know, but it's, for some of these other guys, I think it's got to be a little bit tough. I mean, you got a guy like Anthony Ghost. Um, you know, he is kind of playing for his job at this point. But, you know, at the same time, there's not a ton for him to play for. Um, some of these other pitchers are, you know, if anything, trying to avoid serious injury uh, at this point in the season. Um, so it's it's definitely got to be tough. 
Yeah, and I was thinking the, uh, earlier today in pondering this question that I think it's probably especially tough on the younger guys. And there are quite a few younger guys on the staff now. If you kind of think about it, you know, Iglesias, uh, McCann, Castellanos, and these are just kind of the full-timers, not to mention the ones that just got, you know, traded over in Norris, Boyd, uh, you know, some uh, Verhagen. Um, there, there are a lot of young guys on this team. It, I think it's got to be especially challenging for them. They're, I mean, they're not battle-hardened. They're not uh, Ian Kinsler, who just kind of has this sort of, you know, approach to the game that he's, I think he's in it to win it no matter what. You know, I, I think this is maybe, well, this is probably a good segue <laughs> into the question of, you know, this isn't necessarily Brad Osmus's fault, but under a guy like Osmus, uh, you know, he he seems so, I don't know, laid back, even keel, very calm, um, you you got to wonder what the younger guys are picking up, you know, in, in a time like this when there's not anything to play for, but they, they need to be playing for something. Uh, really, is there any way Brad Osmus is making it out of 2015 alive? Well, I think he'll definitely finish out the year at this point. Uh, it seems pointless to fire a manager with 30 games left in the season, uh, no matter how bad things are getting. Uh, as long as he's not doing anything absolutely malicious, I think he'll survive the season. But, uh, you know, after that, We've talked about it before, both with Al Avila's non-committal comments uh, about Osmus and his introductory press conference, as well as how badly the team is just kind of tanked down the stretch, even with a depleted roster after the trade deadline. It's really tough to see them making any sort of run, and I don't think there's any way that Osmus uh, is back in 2016. I'm really surprised at the number of people that I still see, whether it's, you know, in the Facebook comments or on Twitter or even in the site comments that still seem to think that there's a chance for Brad Osmus coming back. Uh, I think maybe it was on Facebook. Somebody said something like, well, you don't know that he's not coming back any more than I know that he's not coming back. And I'm thinking, no, I, I, I'm absolutely saying zero chance at this point. There is absolutely no way. And frankly, I think that's, it's a Mike Illich business decision at this point. Mike Illich is a wealthy old billionaire owner of a business and you know in my 20 years as a as a working professional I've worked for a couple of these guys that are you know the small business owners that are older they're they're wealthy I I've not known a single one of these guys to ever put the hands of their company in you know sorry put the the future of their company in the hands of somebody who had say maybe just graduated with a business degree and maybe had a good internship which is kind of the equivalent of where Brad Osmus was coming from I, I just don't see a businessman like Mike Illich being okay with continuing to put his behemoth of a team that he's spent hundreds of millions of dollars on over the last decade plus in the hands of a rookie manager. The, I'll tell you this. If there's any chance at all, any chance that Brad Osmus comes back, it hinges, for me, it hinges on two things. Number one, that Mike Illich does not survive the year himself. And number two, that if he did pass and Chris Illich took over, it would also depend on Chris Illich having some kind of attachment himself, you know, to Brad Osmus. But if either of those two things, th those don't happen there, no, there's no way. How can, no, nope. I'll, I'll take bets. I'll take bets now. I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's any way that Osmus comes back next year. Um, had we seen any sort of growth from him as a manager this season, I think there would have been a better chance, but we've seen, you know, a lot of the same mistakes. Uh, you know, we're, kind of talking about in-game management here uh, which is only a small part of the a small part of the manager's job but you'd think that there would be some sort of growth uh, you know a little bit more I, I hate to say the word focus from the team right now but it's really kind of come down to that 
you know, getting more more out of the team at this point in the season, I think would be you know a bit more. I don't want to say predictive of what Osmus will happen, but the fact that they're not getting much out of the team now, I think, kind of seals his fate. Yeah, and there, there's more to say about that, but I want to save that for our, our seventh inning Kvetch segment, where we'll kind of tie that into you know asking what kind of a uh, manager the team needs there's there's more to be said on that but i'll 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 save it for that uh before we bail out of this high and tight segment do you see what i did there bail out high and tight get it okay uh that's uh yeah that's that's why they let me host the show uh one more quick topic to discuss is uh, victor martinez being moved down in the order flip-flopping with uh, jd martinez what does that mean to you in terms of uh I mean, does that say anything about his future in Detroit at this point? I don't think so. Um, for one, I think that the Tigers would be selling extremely low on him if they decided to trade him uh, during the offseason or anything like that. Um, you've got a you know, 36, 37-year-old DH coming off of an absolutely horrible season, uh, you know, partially offset by injury. Um, and I think that there's not going to be many teams willing to take on that kind of contract uh, you know, if anything, the Tigers would have to pay almost all of that deal themselves. Uh, and at that point, I think you just kind of need to ride it out and see if Martinez bounced back. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I mean, he got that contract because Mike Illich is a very loyal person. You know, let's face it. He, he had a good season at the end of his contract, and, and Illich said, I'm going to take care of you, and he did, and he got the four-year extension. Uh, I don't think that's going to go away. I don't necessarily even think that it needs to go away. Like you said, he he was coming off of a, a surgery, you know, at the beginning of this year, uh, I remember you and I talking on one of the very early podcasts way, way back at the beginning of the year uh, about the fact that what he needed in order to kind of recover from that was really game time. He needed to work on his you know, live swing to sort of strengthen that that knee. You know, I, I'm not sure that it's over yet. You know, I'm not sure the rehab is completely finished yet. And I don't know. I mean, is it a situation that you think he can come back? next year and and be the Victor Martinez that we saw, you know, in 2014. I don't know if we're ever going to see the Victor Martinez from 2014 again. Oh, just give me uh, this, Rob. That was that was a pretty special pretty special season. Uh but I think we can get a guy, you know, closer to approximating his career numbers. Um you know, maybe not the 32 home runs he hit in 2014, but a guy that's hitting, you know, above 300 with a very good on-base percentage uh, and really is kind of a force in the middle of that lineup. Um, you know, one guy that I think, I, uh, at least a rosy comparison, uh, that I kind of had an idea for was Kendrys Morales of the Royals. Um, you know, he missed a big portion of the 2014 season because he had a draft pick attached to his name uh, after being extended a qualifying offer, offer following the 2013 season. Um, so he missed, I believe it was the first two, two and a half months of the year. Um, and then finally came back, signed with, I believe it was the Twins or the Mariners or someone like that. Um, you know, really had kind of a just a horrible season. Um, so the Royals got Royals signed him this season at a at a bargain price for you know a hitter who has put up numbers like Morales has this year. Uh, you know, Morales is a switch hitter. He's younger than Martinez, but he's also a switch hitter. Um, has not put up quite as good of numbers as Martinez. If anything, you kind of call him a poor man's. Victor, um, but and he also isn't coming off the same injury that Victor is. He just didn't play. But you know, at this point, with Victor probably fully recovered from his knee injury, um, but he's gone through that same kind of lack of playing time. Well, part of it is lack of playing time. He didn't have any playing time in spring training. He missed uh, 
you know, a month on the disabled list. Uh, and part of it is just bad playing time. You know, he spent, you know, six weeks at the beginning of the year hobbling around on that knee. He hasn't been hitting too well since. Uh, so, you know, maybe like Justin Verlander, like Miguel Cabrera, if he has an off season to get fully healthy, then he comes back in 2016 and actually plays well. Yeah, it's almost as if guys who are a little bit older take a little bit longer to recover from their injuries. Hmm, interesting concept. But uh, maybe a topic for a different time. Uh, so, yeah, I think that'll just about do it for our high and tight segment because we've got some really cool listener questions coming up in the end of the mob scene at home segment. We're going to talk about what high socks have to do with good baseball. Coming up after the break. Swing a fly ball left field. Deep going back. Cabrera looking up and it's gone. A home run. James McCann with the walk-off winner. Number three. Rounding third. Exchanges the low ten with Dave Clark. And into the hot scene at home. And into the mob scene at home we go with this portion of the show where we take questions from our listeners uh, via several different means. And, you know, I swear to God, Rob, I was going to put it in the show notes this time to actually write down what is the Gmail address. It is uh, bybtigers at gmail.com, isn't it? Correct. Bybtigers at gmail.com. Send us your questions at bybtigers at gmail.com or... Leave them on the site, or you can get us uh, on Twitter at Bless You Boys, at BYB Rob, or at Hook Slide BYB. First question from, boy, these names are just fun. <laughs> emotional rebooting. Uh, that I've had several emotional reboots, actually. It's anytime you try to bring the computer back up and it says, wait, Windows updates are installing 26%, 27%. Yeah, things get emotional at that point. Uh, yeah. At Emotional Tigers on Twitter says, how has Nick Castellanos done since switching to high socks compared to the weeks before high socks? I actually took a look at this. Uh, I pulled up several games uh, in throughout the, throughout the months in July and August. Uh, I didn't get to all of them. Uh, I had to get to work before I w- was able to complete my research. But uh, I looked up to games up, up until August 14th. And Castellano still had pants down low, no high socks. Um, but he would, you know, he hit fairly well in July. Um, he hit 258, 327 with a 495 slugging percentage uh, and six home runs. Uh, so a pretty good month out of him. Um, you know, actually looking at it, the, the magic date seems to be June 23rd, uh, which coincides with him getting quote unquote benched during a series against the Yankees. Um, you know, he didn't play in three of those four games. Uh, and has since then has been hitting 285 with a slugging slugging percentage of 531 uh, and 11 home runs. Um, he is that this is actually pretty impressive. He has a 134 weighted runs created plus oh, wow. in the second half, um, which is actually very very good. Uh, and he has finally surpassed. You know, he's played well enough to now to finally surpass the numbers he put up in his rookie season. Yeah, I, uh, obviously the question was kind of a joke, but you know th- the answer is that there's obviously nothing to do with the high socks or not high socks. I'm not even sure why he switched. You know what, though? We we have insider sources, so I could probably find that out. Uh, and I just might do some digging and see if we can't figure out why he switched to the high socks. But no, as I mean, I, the, go, go the high socks do look better, so... Of course they do. I mean, every baseball player ought to know this by now, but we'll, we'll give him time not- to... Not every baseball player. I don't. I don't know if I need to see Miguel Cabrera's Thunder Cavs 
in high socks anymore. Um, he's done that a few times when he's tried to break out of a slump. But uh, those things are monstrous. Do we even see the world the same way? I mean, if you're not going to get a chance to see those Thundercavs, why are you even watching? They just make me feel bad about my skinny little legs. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is why I wrap my skinny little legs in high socks, because, you know, they look better. Fair that enough. <laughs> I'm going to stick with what I said a couple weeks ago, though, that uh, the thing with Nick uh, and the struggles that he was having and breaking out of that absolutely has a lot to do with uh, tinkering too much with his swing mechanics and getting way too much inside his head. Um, now that he's sort of gone back to this idea of just, hey, I know how to hit, I'm going to just swing the bat and hit, it's seeming to come more natural for him, and we're seeing the results of that. He's reaping the dividends of that, and I think as he really settles into that more, you know, where, where his swing and uh, hitting becomes more second nature, uh, I'm predicting that in 2016 you're actually going to see even a little more power development follow on that, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him hit... 2025 home runs next year as assuming that he can stay in that in that really tight groove that he's in and just doing the swing thing uh brad that's a great question by the way thank you emotional tigers for for sending that in brad barons at brad barons four says what should the tigers focus on this offseason is the rotation or the bullpen a bigger concern for 2016 i think the rotation is a much bigger concern um, and it really isn't kind of a complicated situation. I think it goes, it boils down uh, strictly to the volume of innings that they throw. Uh, the, rota- the Tigers' rotation this year has logged uh, 727 innings, uh, which is more than double what the bullpen has. And when you know those two things are equally bad, uh, they're among the worst teams in the American League in both areas, just about every stati- statistical category, um, I think you have to fix the rotation first. Uh, you usually have to throw a little bit more money at that, so we'll probably see a free agent starter picked up, if not two. Um, but I think that if you have to fix one of the two, you fix the one that's going to be logging more innings and facing more batters. Yeah, I know I wrote a post uh, several months back uh, kind of detailing the, the Royals' strategy of uh, they're able to win many games in the first half by just simply limiting the number of innings that their starters pitch. That's how they were able to, you know, kind of avoid exposing their their very weak starting rotation at that point, and let the bullpen step in and pitch. You know, the majority of those from like the sixth inning on, and you can do that if you've got a great bullpen. But I, that's not necessarily, you know, even though I acknowledged it in that post and said here is a way that you can win without a good starting rotation. I don't think I would recommend that that be the approach the Tigers try and take and say, you know, screw the starting rotation. We'll, we'll focus more on the bullpen at this point. Um, for the, just for the reasons that you just outlined, the, the starting rotation should get most of the innings. Uh, and I think it's a lot more difficult to build, you know, that kind of a bullpen, the Royals style bullpen that can actually weather those kinds of storms. And even the Royals, you know, went out and got Johnny Cueto because they wanted to take some of the stress off of that bullpen. So, yep, we are fully in agreement there. Focus on the starting rotation, but geez, don't leave the bullpen out of the conversation this time. Let's finally get that taken care of. Eric Hug, at Eric Hug on Twitter, says, how many Tigers coaching changes get made in the offseason, and who's a candidate for replacement? Um, I'm going to have to say everyone. With this, um, you know, usually when you fire a minute, well, usually when you fire a manager, most of the coaching staff goes with, uh, you know, the new manager is going to want to bring in his own guys. We saw a little bit of holdover from when uh, Brad Osmus took over for Jim Leland. He kept Gene Lamont as his bench coach, and I believe Osmus said that that was kind of a plan for him all along, 
whenever he got a coaching job was to have Lamont and as, as his bench coach. The fact that he was already here was just coincidence. Um, you know, I thought Jeff Jones obviously deserved uh, to be carried over from that uh, from that staff. Uh, you know, the work he did with the Tigers from 2011 to 2013 was just incredible. Uh, with the you know the number of adjustments he was able to have pitchers make uh, from Doug Fister turning it into a monster in 2011. Uh, to Anibal Sanchez becoming amazing in 2012-2013, um, you know, and the progress that Max Scherzer made. I thought that Jones was, you know, an easy carryover. Um, this year, I don't know if anyone fits that bill. I don't, I don't want to say that Jones has worn out his welcome. I would be okay with him coming back next year, but it depends on the manager that you hire. Um, you know, one guy I would like to see come back is Omar Vizquel, simply because his Instagram game is off the charts. <laughs> I, look, I know we can, I know we can say we're just mostly rooting for entertainment purposes in 2015. But come on, 2016's got to be more about about more than just Instagram. Well, we also don't know what exactly a first base coach does, um, you know. And Omar Vizquel has been, I believe, his other job is to coach the infielders. Right. And if right. you're going to have someone coaching the infielders, the Omar Vizquel is kind of the guy you want. Yeah, yeah, and I. I haven't I can't say this by the numbers. My my gut feel and just kind of looking back is I, I think that he has made a difference in that it seems to me that the, the infield defense is better this year than it was last year. So I think you're seeing some signs of, of Vizquel on that. Uh as far as the question goes, I'm again I'm just gonna basically agree with you and say if not if, but when Brad Osmus goes, I'm thinking pretty much everyone ends up getting, you know, sent out with him. Um I would like to see Jeff Jones stay. I think he's got some value, especially because I have this crazy plan about bringing Doug Fister back uh, as a free agent, um, and I think he would benefit from having Jeff Jones work with him again. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of who's a candidate for replacement, I mean, God, I have a hard enough time trying to figure out who the next manager might be, just because there's so many unknowns and names you probably haven't thought of yet. So I, I can't even begin to think of who would be candidates for replacement in terms of, you know, the coaches. So, um, Josh Nelson at SSS underscore Josh Nelson says, uh, White Sox fan here. Why did you let a White Sox fan question through? Well, Josh Nelson is kind of a fan of the, uh, fan and friend of the podcast. Um, he is a host of Southside Sox's, uh, podcast. Um, and he's actually gave us several pointers, uh, when we were rebooting our podcast. So I kind of threw him a bone for this one. Um, his question is, is it worth taking a flyer on Austin Jackson in 2016? Uh, oh boy, that's, that's a really, and I, and I saw what you, what you wrote about this, you know, on the, on the mailbag post today too. And I, I was kind of, I was kind of glad to see that you'd put some numbers kind of behind my just instinct, you know, that the feeling of like, no, nah, I don't think Austin Jackson's been doing all that great. Uh, since leaving Detroit and you know it's hard to say how much of that's environmental or whatever but um, you know not to not to really irritate anybody or offend anybody but I was never really that big of an Austin Jackson fan to begin with I mean defensively yeah you know great center fielder but um, you know not so much uh, in the other areas of the game so uh, I'm I'm quite happy with with uh, Anthony Ghost as a defender Um I have some hopes that Anthony Ghost might be able to learn a thing or two about offense, but uh, yeah, no, I'm going to pass on Austin Jackson. See, I'm a little bit more torn on this one. Um, I was a huge fan of Jackson when he was here in Detroit. Uh, Seeing him jog off the field last July when he was traded was easily one of the most surreal moments I've had as a fan. 
Um, but the numbers, like you said, are kind of concerning. Uh, one number that I think is really interesting is his walk rate. Um, you know, he walked in about 8.5% of his plate appearances with the Tigers, including 8% in 2014. But that rate just took a nosedive when he went to Seattle. And he only walked in about 5% of his walk, uh, of his plate appearances uh, with the Mariners. Um, you know, and you can, Did you say 5? 5%, yeah. Oh that's like uh, that's like Ioannis Cespedes territory there, um, you know. And, it, it <laughs> and it's it's just kind of puzzling to me, like why he dropped off so quickly. Hmm. Why did everything fall apart so quick for him after leaving Detroit? You know, he was having a great month with the Tigers in July. I remember this? He was actually one of their best hitters in July before he was traded. Um, so you know, it's I don't necessarily say that I want him back as a starter or anything like that. I think there's a role for him, and I think someone else is going to give him starter money. Uh, but, you know, if he comes back as kind of a fourth outfielder for a cheap price, kind of a Rajay Davis-type contract, I think you got to jump all over that. Yeah, I would agree. I guess there's two parts to that question. And, and now that you say he had a great July for us last year, that reminds me, I, I actually wrote a post about him in June kind of studying his peripherals and things like the line drive rate and contact rate and walk rate, all that kind of stuff, and projecting and saying, I think he's poised for one of his best years offensively that we've ever seen. And I was, I was a little bit irritated that he got traded, so we didn't get to really see that you know, unfold. But uh, you're, you're right, he, he was having a great year in 2014 for the Tigers. I guess the second part of that question, though, is just like you said, is there such a thing as taking a flyer on Austin Jackson? I mean, he's a starting center fielder, and my God, I just remember he went to the Cubs. I just remembered that. He got yeah, traded he to the Cubs. Just traded to the Cubs this year. Um, you know, the fact that he wasn't claimed by anyone on waivers uh, and got through to the club, to the Cubs, hmm. who have one of the better records in baseball, uh, really kind of says something about his value at this point. So maybe it is possible that the Tigers will be able to get him for some, you know, low money. But, you know, a guy who's still fairly young, he's still in his 20s, and he still has pretty good speed. I believe he has 15 stolen bases this year. You know, it's tough to see someone, you know, it's tough to see him not having much value on the free agent market next year. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I I know he struggled and and you know like you said, but I I really I just have a hard time seeing. Uh, let, let me rephrase that. It's easier if it's not in the negative. I can easily see some major league team, one of the teams next year, being interested in picking him up as a regular. I don't, I don't know what kind of money or years he would get, but it's I, he's going to get a contract. He has to. Uh, and let me just backtrack is I, I didn't mean to rip on Austin Jackson I, in saying that I wasn't a big fan of his. I liked the guy, but he's just not one of those guys that for me was like, oh, yeah, that's the guy that I would be super excited to get him back. He was OK. I'm OK if he doesn't come back. Uh, TTI at Tigers Trade Ideas on Twitter says, do the Tigers bring back you on Give Jason Hayward a big contract or wrestle Alex Gordon away from Kansas City to man left field? Or do we settle for worse? I think strict probability suggests that the Tigers will probably end up settling for worse. Um, <laughs> you know, for one, for one, Alex Gordon has a player option with the Royals for next season that he has said multiple times that he intends to honor, even though the $12 million or so he, that he gets from that is far lower than what he would get on the free agent market, even after, I think, the, uh, the big injury he had this year. Um, so you basically, you know, if he does keep his word and stays in KC for that, uh, you basically got two guys that everyone's going to be gunning for. Um, I think that both of those guys are probably going to end up getting $20 million a year uh, over the next several seasons. Um, you know, if I had to pick one of the two, I would say that I'd rather have Cespedes. Uh, for one, I just 
like him better as a player. He's an exciting guy to watch. Um, but I also think his game is going to age a little bit better than Hayward's, as odd as that seems. You know, Hayward is more kind of a speed and defense guy. Um, you know, a lot of people have been waiting for a while for his power to break out, but I don't necessarily see that ever happening. Uh, whereas Ioannis Cespedes has grown man strength. Um, you know, he's a guy that's gonna, you know, he's gonna hit for power for years. You see guys, you know, in their mid thirties like Nelson Cruz, David Ortiz, still hitting plenty of home runs. That power is aging well for both of those guys. And I think that Ioannis Cespedes is one of those players. Um, you know, will the rest of his game hold up to keep that value? particularly the plate discipline and his lack of walks like we already noted on tonight's show. Uh, that's a little bit tough, and I don't necessarily know if he's worth that $20 million. But, you know, one of those two, give me Cespedes. Yeah, well, if you're so big on Cespedes, maybe lay off his walk rate, okay? Anyway, moving on. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, I don't, I know, I know that Cespedes wants to come back. I know that's the kind of the running narrative. Uh but you're talking about, like you said, big contracts. Cespedes is a big contract. Hayward is a big contract. Alex Gordon and his, this is just an estimate, three and a half million defensive runs saved that he's accumulated uh, is going to be worth huge money, you know, even if we're looking at 2017 or, you know, assume that he doesn't take the player option and goes to the, to the free agent market. He's going to get paid. And I keep going back to, I'm sorry, but the Tigers have, they don't have a ton of money. They have got so much money locked up. We said on previous show on a previous show, Somewhere in the sixty to sixty-four percent range of, of you know the, the the payroll is already locked up on a couple of players, so they don't have a lot of money that they have to spread around to fill a lot of spots. I just I don't see them spending huge huge money uh, on any of these guys. Maybe maybe Cespedes. Maybe I. Yeah, I'm I'm with the uh, I think we settle for worse, unfortunately, <laughs> you know. But this actually is a great segue into the next question, which came from Phil Coke's brain at Comerica Eric. It says, "Can Tyler Collins be a full-time major league outfielder?" I don't know if Collins is ever going to be, especially a full-time outfielder. Uh, if anything, you might look at him as a potential platoon guy, um, but he hasn't really been hitting well against right-handers in the major leagues this year. I wasn't able to pull up his minor league splits before we started tonight's show. Uh, but, you know, he only had a 662 OPS in AAA this season playing full-time. You know, and that's not exactly the kind of numbers that you want to see out of a guy who might be gunning for a starting spot. Uh, he definitely hit better in AAA last year. Uh, you know, and there may be some reason, you know, an undisclosed injury or something like that, that he wasn't hitting so well this year. I do believe he ended up on the disabled list a little for a little while with an Achilles uh, issue. Um, so, you know, I had that kind of in the back of my head there. Um, but I, I just don't know if he is going to be the kind of guy that you want to really rely on going into the offseason. He's not a great defender um, and doesn't do any one thing particularly well. He's kind of, you know, a well-rounded player, but a flawed well-rounded player, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's he's well-rounded, but he's still, you know, D-list maybe or C-list. He's, he's not B-list or even especially not A-list. Can I mean the question of can he be a full time major league outfielder? You know, I'm kind of going with what you're saying. It's yeah, he's just not going to be your number one guy. I don't think the the more interesting question for me is will he be a full time major league outfielder? Kind of piggybacking on that last question. You know, will the Tigers end up settling for worse in left field? You know, how how likely do you think it is that Tyler Collins ends up kind of getting that role at least maybe in a platoon basis? I don't know if it's that likely. 
if anything, I think that the Tigers may opt for him as kind of a fourth outfielder. And I like that idea a little bit better. Um, you know, he's not an awful defender, but he's not a great one. Uh, he may or may not be able to play center field for short stints. We've heard kind of mixed reviews on that. Uh, but he also provides a little bit of power off the bench, which is something the Tigers have really kind of lacked over the last several years. Uh, so it would be nice to see him kind of wrestle control of that job, if nothing else. All right. Last question uh, for our Into the Mob Scene at Home segment comes from Red Mosquito at Red Mosquito 2 on Twitter. Do we start off next year with Bruce Rondone as our closer, or do we acquire someone? Man, everyone wants us to spend money. You know, this is kind of a, a an out-of-left-field answer. Uh, um, um, but, you know, I think the Tigers may look to Rondone as their closer next year. His 6.56 ERA this season is kind of yuck, uh, but he's striking out almost 13 batters per nine innings and has a strikeout-to-walk ratio close to three which is really kind of what you want to see out of him. Um, you know, the Tigers have kind of looked at him as the quote-unquote closer of the future for a while now, um, you know, and with a more saber-savvy front office, maybe they, you know, kind of give him the clean ninth inning and go get a couple of more underrated guys to handle some of the more hairy situations in the sixth, seventh, and eighth innings, uh, and maybe you spend your money there and just hope that Rondon can kind of lock down that closer role. You know, maybe not be an elite guy right away, uh, but, you know, a serviceable closer who can, you know, handle most of those games for you. Yeah, I'm going to answer the question slightly different, I guess, in that I, I don't necessarily want to see them go outside the organization uh, to spend money on a closer because I actually don't think that's necessary at this point. I, but I'm not going to go with Rondon. I would like to see them put Alex Wilson into that role, and I've said this before, but I'd like to see them be a little more liberal in his usage and not be afraid to let him go ahead and pitch six out, quote-unquote, saves. You know, let him come in in the eighth and do eighth and ninth. Uh, I was just looking at the uh, bullpen RE24 numbers, your kind of expected runs saved stat uh, for the second half, and and Wilson continues to be at the top of that list. Interestingly enough, though, uh, Drew Verhagen is at the top of that list with 3.70 expected runs prevented or saved so Verhagen is actually kind of shaping up to maybe be a nice option I know there's some some you know there's some warning signs in the peripherals he walks a lot of batters his whip is not great um, but he seems to have decent stuff that maybe if he can develop it I mean don't you think uh, Verhagen might be potentially an option if you could go Verhagen and then get the ball to Wilson it's possible and Verhagen is kind of one of those uh, four, former, I don't know if I want to say as a failed starter, uh, but a former starter type that I think that the you know, fans have been looking for to move to the bullpen. Um, his inning total is rather low. I think the last time I looked, he was still under 10 major league innings for the year. Yeah, so I think that explains, that explains a lot of his, uh, his weird peripherals. So it'll be interesting to see over the next month. And he's really kind of a guy that I'm interested to watch over the next few games uh, to see how he does down the stretch. Um, but, yeah, if you can get a guy like that, you know, him or uh, Kyle Ryan or someone to paint out in the bullpen, I think that, you know, not only saves you money for next year, but it helps solve the huge problem that is the bullpen. Yeah, I'd like to see, you know, some more innings out of Hagen, like you said, could be creating some weird peripherals. But I also think, you know, some, things like the walk rate, you know, and the high whip uh, – are you know explainable when you watch him pitch and see he's he does lack a little bit of command but he does throw some hard stuff he's hitting 96 maybe 97 on the gun um you know like i said if he can develop a decent secondary pitch you know then i think he can be a real weapon and really you, you look at some of these names 
you know, that are at the top of the list for the RE24 ranking. You know, you got Verhagen, you got Wilson, you got Albuquerque. Um, tack on to that, uh, Blaine Hardy, who's struggling a bit in the second half, but did great in the first half. Overall, he's got really good numbers. Uh, throw in Ron Doan. And now you got, I think, five guys that, you know, are potentially a pretty decent core there. I'm not sure you really need to go outside the organization at this point and, you know, lock up a so-called elite closer. I definitely don't think they need to go out and lock up an elite guy, but it would be nice to see them, you know, pluck another name or two off of the free agent list. Uh, you mentioned both Albuquerque and Hardy. Uh, both of those guys were signed as minor league free agents. Um, you know, that was kind of under the previous regime, although, you know, who's finding these guys is kind of tough to say. Um, so, you know, maybe they kind of find another diamond in the rough, something like that. You know, another underrated guy that pans out could really be big for them. And that is all we have for our listener questions in this segment. Uh, appreciate all those who submitted the questions. Absolutely uh, reach out to us, bybtigers at gmail.com, at hookslidebyb on Twitter, at bybrob on Twitter, and uh, at Bless you Boys on Twitter. If you want to get some more questions in for next week, we certainly appreciate it and enjoy interacting with our listeners. All right, we're getting ready to wrap this thing up. When we get back, the seventh inning Kvetch. What kind of manager do the Tigers need in 2016? We'll answer that when we get back. Three now. Here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh. And Victor got tossed. And down the home stretch we come with the seventh inning Kvetch. And the hot topic here, what kind of manager that do the Tigers need in 2016? And obviously this is a, a sort of, um, my brain has just blown up and I've forgotten the word that I wanted to use. This is all sort of presupposes, I guess, that uh, what we're saying is true and that Brad Osmus is absolutely not coming back in 2016. That being the case, that being the presumption that we're going to work with in this hypothetical Um you know, what kind of a manager should the Tigers hire? And, and to kind of give you a little bit of the background on this, because I did a post today on uh, sort of the background behind uh, Manny Acta as, uh, you know, being a very sabermetrics-friendly manager, albeit with a very, very bad um, track record in terms of, uh, you know, winning percentages. Did not have success in three years with the Washington Nationals, got fired from from that job midseason, did not have success in three years with the Indians, uh, and got fired from that job mid-season. So it's kind of a, a blight on the record. Um, but uh, I guess, you know, I've, I've kind of already made the points, Rob, in the post, you know, in terms of why I like the idea of ACTA, obviously being more metrics-oriented, and I tried to draw some some uh, some things from a case study in the way that he managed his uh, Cleveland Indians roster in uh, in 2010, I think, was the year that I looked at. Um so I kind of want to look at the, the other side of this because I saw many reports um, in researching Manny Act and going back to articles from our, our sister sites, uh, I think it's federalbaseball.com, the Washington National site, and letsgotribe.com, looking back in their archives from the two years that ACTA got fired in 2009 and then in 2012. Reading some of the articles around there, there was a common theme that, that appeared, both uh, Chris Perez for the Indians, and I want to say it was uh, uh, Ryan Zimmerman for the Nationals, both made very similar comments when ACTA was fired. Their comments were, he's just not, uh, he, he lacks, 
what was the word they used? Well, just he's too laid back, basically. Didn't have enough intensity, didn't have enough passion. Uh, Chris Perez said, hey, he only ever talked to the team twice, once at the beginning of the year, once at the end of the year. He never got in my face on anything. In fact, we'd go seven, eight, nine days without talking at all. And I need more than that. And Ryan Zimmerman said a lot of the players and the Nationals kind of felt the same way, especially, and both guys actually said this, um, in terms of uh, ACTA's um, reticence to go out to, to challenge umpire calls and you know kind of get out there. And Zimmerman said, hey, I don't need the guy to be Lou Pinella and throwing the bases around you know, and throwing fits, but I do need my, my manager to stick up for me once in a while. So, look, Rob, I, I don't necessarily buy into the... Um, you know, a manager needs to be a good rah-rah guy, you know, rally the troops and that kind of thing. I think the players should be able to self-motivate, and if they can't, then you've got a bigger problem. Fix the roster. It's not the manager's, you know, sort of thing to get in their face. At the same time, if the players feel that way and there's some dissatisfaction and lack of respect for the manager because of that, I think that can actually be a problem. So let me pose the question to you, Rob. If you got a guy like Manny Acta, who on the one hand is metrics-oriented and making all the right strategy moves based on the percentages, however, he's just kind of, you know, lackadaisical and doesn't inspire the players, and they kind of tend to not respect him for that. Or you have, on the other hand, a kind of an old-school manager, I don't know, think like the, the evil love child of Jim Leland and Ned Yost, you know, he's spitfire and hellfire and brimstone and also bunts a lot and does way too much over-managing, but he inspires the players which which guy do you go with what kind of manager do the tigers need i think i would definitely have the latter um i think that jim leland's success in detroit has kind of uh skewed me a little bit that way um but you see you really kind of see the love that the players had for leland um you know the proverbial they would run through run through a wall for him uh type of love for that kind of manager um and i think that you know with the 162 games in a season and all of the grind and the travel and, you know, all the things that go along with that. I think that we see, uh, you know, on TV and in press conferences, a very small percentage of what actually comprises a manager's job. And I think that a lot of that behind the scenes stuff is much more important than, you know, some of the in-game strategy. Um, I think that, you know, in-game strategy and things can lose you, you know, a few games throughout the season, but you can also see, you know, a manager who isn't good at managing a clubhouse. Um, 2012 Bobby Valentine with the Boston Red Sox comes to mind. Uh, you know, you kind of see just the meltdown that that happened, that happened there. Or maybe, you know, it was 2012 uh, with the Red Sox. Um, and you can see that a manager who doesn't manage a clubhouse well can have a far more negative impact than a guy who, you know, bunts too much or uses his bullpen poorly. Um, going back to Acto a little bit, I think that it kind of speaks volumes that a guy like Ryan Zimmerman, who for a long time has been kind of seen as the clubhouse leader here uh, with the Nationals, even now, as you've got uh, other, you know, more star players coming up, Zimmerman is still kind of seen as the glue guy on that team. Uh, to see him say something like that, I think, speaks a little bit more to, you know, the kind of the problems that Acta had than with a guy like Chris Perez. Um, you know, for instance, with those Nationals teams and, you know, the, you know, 2006, 2007, uh, all the way up to when he was fired, those were some younger teams, a little bit more inexperienced. Right. So I don't know if that necessarily translates as well to a more veteran packed team like the Tigers who may benefit a little bit more from a hands-off manager. Um, but, you know, you still got several young guys in the Tigers. So I think that, you know, you can't exactly, you know, just hand the keys over to the veterans in the clubhouse. Um, 
so it's tough to say whether or not he would be successful there. But to see, you know, players come out and kind of, you know, speak, I don't necessarily want to say poorly about him, but not speak well of him after he was fired is a little concerning. Yeah, it's, I, I, my mind is far, far from made up on the subject. I mean, of course, of course, I want to see a guy like Acta uh, in terms of a manager who's saber friendly. I want to see a guy who knows how to use his bullpen by the numbers, who doesn't bunt, who doesn't steal unless it makes sense to, you know, all of that kind of stuff. A guy who's not going to leave Jose Iglesias in the ninth slot in the batting order when common sense says you get a guy like that as many plate appearances as you can. Uh, on the other hand, you know, like I said, to see the kind of the report both from Perez and from Zimmerman on act and to see how that kind of impacted those players and saying, yeah, it does matter to us. And we kind of don't, you know, respect the guy as a result. Um, you don't want that. You don't want that to be a cancer in the clubhouse either. And I, I thought it was interesting. One of those, I, I wish I could remember who it was that said it. I read so many freaking articles on this guy in the last 48 hours. I, I wish I could remember who actually wrote it, but somebody made the point that said, um, you know, even Dusty Baker, for all of his weird strategical foibles and, and quirks, always seemed to his teams always seem to either meet or exceed expectations. Uh, so him, you know, he being more of that kind of you know fire in the belly um, type of manager. Honestly, uh, you know, I think at this point, um, it, it doesn't really matter to me who they hire as long as he's not opposed to learning something about sabermetrics. As long as he's not going to stand in the way of what Alavila and company want to do. Um, I'm pretty well okay with it. So jury's out on, on Manny Acta, but let me quickly tie this, tie this back to what we were talking about earlier before we wrap this show up. Um, now, having discussed that, that particular dimension of, of Acta's uh, regime, both with the Nationals and the Indians, uh, do you maybe see some, some resonance there, Rob, with, um, you know, with Brad Osmus, uh, can, can you see, could you see an Ian Kinsler say next year coming out after Brad Osmus leaves and saying, yeah, he was too laid back and we kind of didn't respect him for it. Yeah. I was actually trying to kind of think of a way to formulate that into my next comment is that mm. it does sound eerily like Osmus, um, you know, the kind of the hands off approach, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on in the clubhouse there, but he's not exactly the most fiery guy. Uh, I think we've really only seen him get riled up maybe once, and that was when he got ejected last year, the whole thing with a chart that he was waving around in front of the umpire. Um, easily the most entertaining moment of his tenure, um, but we really haven't seen a thing like that. You know, Even Jim Leland, you know, you'll see him barking at umpires from the dugout, you know, and maybe he's not going through the most entertaining ejections you know, every other week, hmm. although he did have a few dandies uh, in his time here in Detroit. You know, he, he definitely got a little bit more out of his players. You know, you see several guys like that around baseball, you know, guys you don't necessarily want, or you wouldn't think it was uh, even the slightest bit sabermetrically inclined. Uh, a guy like Ron Washington comes to mind in his years with the Rangers. Mm. Um, you know, guys, you know, one that's been mentioned a lot on the site is Ron Gardenhire. Right. Uh, you know, guys like that who probably aren't very saber savvy, but seem to run a pretty good clubhouse and get a lot out of their players. So yeah. I would definitely rather have a guy like that over, you know, maybe the laid-back but saber-savvy kind of guy in ACTA. Yeah, I, I think I'm slowly being won over to the viewpoint that, um, you know, like I said, I think it's maybe more the, the role of the front office. Maybe it's more the role of the general manager to be worrying about the saber metrics and that you don't necessarily need uh, the clubhouse manager to be the guy that does that. Again, as long as he's willing to play along, as long as he's willing to work with the front office and not, you know, 
contravene what they're doing or hinder it or, or render it ineffective by his own, you know, I, again, I go back to that line from, from Moneyball, um, you know, in the scene where, where the Billy Bean um, character played by Brad Pitt is having trouble with his manager because he won't play the lineup the way Bean wants it. And he goes down to the to the manager and says, hey, it doesn't matter what moves I make if you don't play the team the way they're designed to be played. And that's that's what you don't want, I think. We've got a shot here with Alavila saying he's committed to the sabermetrics. We have a, a chance to see some real, I think, good things. Just, hey, if it's garden hire, it's garden hire, as long as he's you know going to be pliable and, and play the game. So that's uh, that's what I think about it. Um, I'm just about ready to stop this merry-go-round so all the kitties can go toss their cookies and get their equilibrium back. Rob, any final thoughts? Not really, just uh, kind of gearing up to watch what looks to be a pretty awful game uh, that is unfolding tonight. The last I checked, the Tigers were down 9 to nothing. Oh, good. Uh, and, yeah, so... Yay, September <laughs> baseball. Oh, oh, I've got some Jack Daniels in the cupboard. Um, I think I'm going go, gonna to go talk to Uncle Jack and not watch the rest of this game. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in for another Voice of the Turtle podcast. If you want to keep this discussion going, please leave your comments on the post where this podcast is embedded. Uh, you can also reach out to me on Twitter at HookslideBYB or Rob at BYBRob on Twitter. Of course, like we've said before, you can reach us on Facebook, facebook.com slash BYB.Tigers, uh, at Bless you Boys on Twitter, and then, of course, the website, BlessYouBoys.com. Or, if you prefer the quote-unquote old-school method, send us an email at BYBTigers at gmail.com. So, thanks for joining me, Rob. Welcome back. Good to be back. I don't ever, ever want to do a solo podcast ever again. So really appreciate you coming back from the Miami sweat on that. Uh, yeah. So until next time, keep your cleats sharp, keep the glove leather oiled, and watch that fly ball raid. And we will see you on the next episode of The Voice of the Turtle. Cool. Thanks, man. No problem. See ya. Hey, wait a minute. Is that a, is that a bottle of bullet bourbon you got back there? It is, absolutely. God yep. damn it, Rob. Now I gotta go <laughs> now I gotta go to the store. <laughs> All right, man. See you later. Have a good one.